Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. One of the biggest trials to, to hope is time. Okay? Oh, there we go. So this is uh, the first Sunday of Advent. Traditionally, that's the Sunday of hope. It's also the Sunday of preparation. And I don't want this in front of me. So we're going to talk about hope. We're going to talk about what is biblical hope and what it isn't. Uh, I'll repeat this later, but hope is not optimism. It's, It's something much deeper than that. Uh, I've been cold. I'm kind of strange at times. And one of the reasons people have said that is whenever people ask, well, what's your favorite Christmas passage? I share my favorite Christmas passage. And I've had someone even say, you're just weird, because it's like, that is not even what I think was the Christmas passage. But I'm going to share my favorite Christmas passage right now. <clears throat> and I like it because it explains not only Christmas, but it explains Christ's So my favorite Christmas passage actually isn't in the Gospels. It's in Philippians 2. Because it tells us what actually happened from God's perspective on Christmas. So though he was God, so it's starting with verse 6. He is Jesus. Though he was with God. And I'm putting in the literal there because this particular passage is used by certain groups to deny the deity of Christ because of the way they twist it. So... <clears throat> whether you run into them or, or not, as may know, the literal in the Greek is he is inherently existent as God. Because that actually the literal says Jesus, he, referring to Jesus, was inherently or fundamentally deity, but then emptied himself. It actually has a clause in there that says his thinking, his deeming, his thinking is it would not be usurpery or it would not be um, robbery to claim equality with God. So there was no question about what this, this passage is saying. He did not think of equality of, with God as something to cling to. He had it, but he relinquished it. It's actually a term that means like opening your grasp. <clears throat> Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, he, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. So hallelujah, we have Christmas. But again, the perspective of this, this isn't just a child being born. This is deity himself clothing himself with humanity. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to Father God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And that was for us. We're going to read a psalm that talks about God himself redeeming Israel of all her sins. And we are the spiritual Israel. So this is, this is a Christmas passage, because it's explained to you from God's perspective what actually happened in Christmas. Therefore, Father God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above all names, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow or should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under earth, every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
<clears throat> How many are looking forward to that day? I mean, there's a lot of people who don't seem to recognize this, but there's coming a day everybody's going to get it. So there's our hope. Because the, the tradition of, of First Sunday of Advent is we're hopeful and we're celebrating his coming birth, but we're also preparing ourselves for the second coming. So I want to now consider a psalm of hope. I'm going to do Psalm 130. My only caution to this is I was a little concerned, like, oh, if they're doing the psalm, the, the ascent psalms, which means the women's Bible study has probably done Psalm 130 because that's an ascent psalm. So, so your Bible study did way better than I did on it. Don't let that stop you from enjoying this. <clears throat> Sorry. So Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And as you'll see, this isn't just a cry for mercy to himself. It's a cry for mercy for all of the people. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, be, we can with reverence, serve you. So it's actually we can serve you out of fear, out of being awestruck. So, Lord, with you, there is forgiveness because your forgiveness is what brings us to a place of being awestruck by you. This is verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. <laughs> Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. So he's saying all the people of God and God, there is full redemption. And then it's an amazing closing line that people often quote. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And I think even the author of Psalm 130 may not even know what they were really saying here. Because he's really writing this prophetic, beautiful poem. But he's prophesying that the Redeemer will redeem Israel of all sins. He himself, God himself became flesh to redeem all of us to him, to purchase us back and forgive all sin. Okay, I want to look at verse 5 again. I will wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. <clears throat> That's the way the NIV and the, the King James put it. Okay, this next verse will look reversed. They're not changing the order or anything. It has to do with what these words wait and hope mean. Another version of it is, <clears throat> I hope in the Lord. My whole being hopes. I wait for God's promise. All right, so in the contemporary English Bible, in Young's literal translation, it's phrased this way. So you'll see, wait and hope seem to be reversed, but they aren't. It's because the word hope and the word wait are the same word in Hebrew. There's actually two words. There's two verbs that mostly mean wait and hope. There's kavah, and then there's yakal. Or I, you actually pronounce it with more of a throat, but I don't speak Hebrew like a native Hebrew. <clears throat> and I have the other words in there because tikva and nikva, they're, they're the nouns for hope. So most of the time when you see hope or wait in the Old Testament, it's the verb. But there is also the noun. Hope is also a noun. And so... Even though in Greek and even in English, the same word is used both as a, a verb and a noun, it isn't in Hebrew. So tikvah and mikvah actually come from the word kavah. And 
Toholat, and I, there's actually supposed to be a C-H in front of it, but I can't pronounce that. That came from the word Yakal. And I want to clear. So Yakal means hope, wait, patient, pain, longing with trust. It has this idea of very patient, enduring, waiting for something. Um, it's the word used when it talks about someone waiting seven years for something to happen. So it's that word, patient. Kabbalah means hope, wait, to look for expectantly. It also means to bind or collect together with a twist or a spiral. I've talked about this one before because in Psalms 40, 31, so starting with verse 29, Isaiah 40, not Psalms, Isaiah 40 is where it says, even young men get tired. Even strong men will stumble and fall. But those that hope in the Lord, or if you read a King James, so the... uh, the NIV, it's the word kavah. In the NIV, even though it translates it wait sometimes, it translates it also as the word hope. So in the NIV, it's those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Right? They will mount up as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Because God never faints. So that's what happens to those that wait in the Lord, if it's King James, or those who hope in the Lord. It's the same word. Modern in modern times, if Jews like you listen, if you read the Orthodox Jewish Bible, so um, there's a version of the New Testament and Old Testament written by <coughs> Jews who believe Hebrews who believe in Jesus the Messiah, and in their New Testament, everywhere it's the word hope. They use the word tikva because tikva is the common Jewish word for the noun hope, and tikva comes right out of kavah. Remember, kavah also means to twist together like a rope. Back when I taught here about Isaiah 40, I talked about how to wait on God is not a passive doing nothing. It means to be bound together. It means you're like a weak thread, but the fact that your thread is weak doesn't matter, because as you wait on him, you are spiraled with God's infinite strength. You are twisted together like a rope. Tikvah literally means rope. Uh, in Joshua 2, you have the story where Rahab the harlot hid the spies. Remember this? When they were going to invade Jericho. And because she hid them, not only was she saved, they said, whoever you bring in your house will be saved. So she brought her parents. She brought her siblings. She brought them the nephews and nieces. She brought everybody in. So that whole part of that family was saved. But the way that they said is, because she let them down with a rope through a window, and they said, take the cord, and they probably met the same cord. We don't know exactly, but it sure seems that way. <clears throat> they said, take this scarlet cord, it's the famous red cord, and tie it around your house. So tie it either at your doorway or window. We aren't sure which one they met. But the idea was, you tie this on your household, and I will tell all of us, don't attack this house. These people are safe. And what's interesting is that word for the cord or rope is tikva. It's literally the exact same word. Tie this red tikva around your house for your hope of salvation. So it means cord because, again, it comes from kavah, which means to make a rope, to twist together. That's what it is. I'm getting across the idea that hope and weight are tied together. Um, I don't know if you've heard of hot tikva. So there was a poem written in the 1800s. So 19th century, there was a poem written by a man. Uh, a Jewish man, and he looked forward to Israel being restored. And he wrote the poem, it's called Ha-Tikva. Ha-Tikva means the Tikva, 
The Hope. So he wrote this poem called The Hope. In the late 40s, 1940s, when Israel was moving back, when, when they decided, the UN decided Israel would belong to Jews, they unofficially called that the national anthem, even though other people wanted to do some of the Psalms. And actually, just recently, like in 2004, so we're like 17 years ago, or I guess I'm getting old, that's almost 20 years ago, <laughs> they officially made the Hatikva their national anthem. It means the hope. And it's actually, an anthem is this poem about God we've been longing, we've been longing for Israel to be our place again. Now, when it crosses, when he wrote it, he wrote it like, God, it's been thousands of years, but I'm still clinging to this hope. This long-term enduring hope. That's the Hatikva. That is the hope. <clears throat> I want to get across. Hope and waiting are tied together. Hope and endurance are tied together. Hope is not optimism. And it's actually dangerous if you confuse the two. So hope is the enduring expectancy that keeps us on the journey regardless of highs or lows. That song, Hallelujah Anyway, back to Jerry's shop, we didn't have to go to work, because I want us to close with that song. Because that song, in fact, I almost felt cheated, because I spent a lot of time on this message, and I realized, man, either Jerry or Joyce just picked this song, and it's the entire message is that song. So that seemed a lot easier than what I had to do. Anyway, it's this idea of the journey regardless of the highs or lows. But they must really be in God's promises. They can't just be optimism. It's not the power of positive thinking. The most famous verse that people often quote with the word tikvah, the Hebrew word tikvah in it, the noun hope, which means rope. I guess I said that because when I was doing this study, a couple of people have actually written articles about hope is a rope. When Israel sings the ha tikvah, they're singing about the rope that God provides that they hang on to. <clears throat> But an often misunderstood verse comes in Jeremiah 29. And I want to talk about that, and I'm going to talk about the James Stockdale paradox. And if you know that, great. This won't be new to you. If you haven't heard about it, well, then I'm excited you get to hear something new. <clears throat> so I'm going to give you the context of this passage that people often quote. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. It's important. He is exiled them. So God has told Israel, or actually this time it's just the tribe of Judah that's left. Well, it's Judah, Judah, Benjamites, and some Levites. Those are the only really three tribes left. Southern kingdom. They're going to be exiled. While Jeremiah is prophesying that, there's other prophets, supposed prophets, who were saying, oh no, Babylon's here, but we're not going to lose. God will take care of us. We have promises of God. We're not going to be exiled. And of course, they're getting exiled anyway. And now they're even telling the exiles, hey, you exiles, don't worry about this. You won't be in Babylon long. God's going to restore us. He's faithful. You know, he has a hope for us, and we're going to be restored. And God says, no, I'm the one who's exiled you to Babylon. From Jerusalem, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens, eat the food they produce. So he's saying, you're going to Babylon, and they're prophesying I'm bringing you back right away. Don't buy it. Eat the produce, marry and have children, then find spouses for them, your children, so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you to exile. No, no, Babylon is the enemies, and we're going to this city. We want you to destroy Babylon and send us back to Jerusalem. And he's saying, nope, that's not what's going to happen. 
You can claim it, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it all you want. That ain't happening. Pray to the Lord for it. So actually pray to God for the city you're going to. For its welfare will determine your welfare. And this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, say. So he has a whole host of armies. And I'm sure the prophets were saying the God of Heaven's armies will fight for us and will defeat Babylon. And he's saying, no, I am the God of Heaven's armies, but this is what I'm saying. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are not telling they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. Think about that if that's us. He's basically saying, you guys going to Babylon, almost all of you are going to die there. So don't listen to these promises that you get to come back. Have children and have grandchildren because they're the, you know, your grandchildren or maybe even your great-great-grandchildren, they'll get to come back. You're not coming back. But then I will come and do, do you, do for you all the good things I have promised and I will bring you home again. And this is why everybody likes to quote. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. And I often hear people prophesy this over people. Oh, but God would say, I have plans for you to build a future and a hope. That is true. But it's his way. Because that is probably the same words being used by the prophet saying, no, no, you aren't going to be stuck in Babylon. I'm bringing you, I'm just bringing you back. Because my plans are good and not disaster. I'm going to give you a hope. I, I bring this up because I'm hearing way too often from people, even among some students I was talking to about, yeah, things are getting crazy. They're getting crazy. Oh, but you know what? Praise God. Any day now, we're going to get raptured. Any day now, we're out of here. Like, the world's getting crazy, but at least we aren't going to have to experience it. We're out of here. Maybe they're right. Maybe. But that's not the promise of God. The promise isn't like an instant you get to avoid suffering. That is just not, that's not a hope of him. Hope, but not presumption. God's plans included the 70 years. So God planned good, but it didn't mean everybody going to Babylon is coming back. In fact, he's pretty clear. No, you got to plan long term. I'm bringing you back, but it's on my time, not your time. James Stockdale, actually eventually became an admiral, but when he was an admiral, he was, he was a pilot. And he was shot down over Vietnam. And he went into the Hanoi Hilton, you know, that was considered the worst prison. He was the highest ranking officer captive. So that meant a lot to the enemy. So they especially chose him for the worst persecution, the worst torture. It was a hard seven years. And uh, when I first heard about this was I, I had heard, uh, I had read something of an interview someone did. And then later I read a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins, powerful book. But he interviewed, and so he has his interview there. And then I went to look up the whole interview. And when Collins interviewed James Stockdale, it was amazing, because he talked about what kept you going. He said, because I knew deep down, I'm not only going to survive this, but the things I learn and that I get built in me will serve me my whole life. I realize this is a trial that is going to build something in me that will affect me my whole life. And he had this determination, rock-solid faith. But it was interesting because Jim Collins directly asked him, so that got you through 
Who are the people that did make it? The ones that, that like emotionally, they broke. And then some of them, even once they emotionally broke, they let themselves waste away and die. And the surprising answer, he said, the ones who did not make it were the optimists. Wait a minute, you just said you had this sure thing that you were going to get out. That seems optimistic. He says, no, I had faith, not optimism. He actually said I didn't have hope because he considered hope meaning optimist. But actually what he described really is biblical hope. It wasn't what we think of hope often in our culture. So he said what happened with the optimists is they would think, they would even say, guys, don't worry, we're strong. We'll be out of here. They're going to free us by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go. And they didn't get free. Okay, that's right. We'll be free by Easter. Easter would come and go. Okay, maybe summer, or maybe not till Thanksgiving or next Christmas, but it'll be soon. It'll be soon. And they all came and went. And it reminded me of the scripture, hope deferred makes a heart grow sick. You know, like even, even when Rob was referring to, you hope for something long enough. Like even as she's I was thinking of the woman in 2 Kings 4, who Elijah promised her a son, and she said, don't lie to me, your servant. Because she had gone so long not having kids, she was afraid to hope anymore. But true hope carries us through the long wait. And that's what they, he said, is the optimist would want to send a date. And he said, no, my faith was, I don't know when it'll be, I don't know how long it'll be, but one day at a time, whatever comes to me today, I am surviving it, because a day is coming, I'm getting out of here. And he, it was also the other part, is he really looked at this day like, nope, I just have to get through this day, because eventually I'm out of here. That deep assurance gave him strength for long suffering, because it wasn't optimism, it was based on a reality of faith. <clears throat> Does this make sense? Because, and there are scriptures that even talk about enduring hope, but this is the one that really came to mind. Paul talks about this enduring hope, and he gives us the secret to how to have enduring hope. He actually talks about two secrets. This one we're going to read, and then later is one in that he prayed. And this one is, in 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians is like a compassionate, powerful, well, it really is almost an entire book on hope. Because Paul's being attacked, he's being ridiculed, and he has worry and stress. And he's, he talks a lot about the stress and the heartache. And he even shows a heart where he says, what is going on here? I have not closed my heart to you, you're closing your heart to me. These people who say I am false, he's like saying, but you know me. You should know better because we're, we're together in this. And this is where he shares... Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Because he just finished talking about how they're persecuted and how all these, all these things he's endured. It's interesting because nowadays people talk about how God's great in their life and their answer, their, their evidence for it is, because I'm speaking to tens of thousands of people. When Paul's talked about evidence of being an apostle, he talked about the things he suffered. He didn't talk about, oh, I'm talking to kings and royalty and I have profound influence. He spoke of what he suffered. He basically said, I know I'm an apostle because I got stripes on my back. For our light and momentary troubles, sorry, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now think, I mean, Paul, 
light and momentary, his entire life was problems. But he says, but they're light and momentary because he's comparing them to eternity. So we fix our eyes on what is seen, sorry, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is unseen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, he's saying, like in one place he even says, we've always held on, if nothing else, I hold on to this hope. That Jesus Christ not only saved me, but when he reigns in eternity, I'm going to be with him. He keeps the long-term picture in mind. So, one thing is, we're fixing our eyes on a hope that I don't know when I'm getting there, but eventually, all this nonsense is over. Eventually, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. That may not happen next year. It may not happen in 10 years, but it is happening. It's like Stocktail. The day is coming. I'm not worried that, oh, any day now I get to escape pain and suffering. No, I can endure pain and suffering because I know it's eventually going to happen. How else do you prepare? <clears throat> it's funny because I, I thought we were doing communion today and I misunderstood. So I kind of prepared this to lead into communion. Now we just won't do that part. But interesting, in Philippians, in chapter 1, and Paul, it's, it's beautiful, the whole chapter is about how Paul is, I'm willing to die, in fact, I'll be better off if they kill me. Because he wrote it near the end of his life when he's in prison, when he wrote Philippians. But he has such a servant's heart, he said, but you know what, if I don't die, it's better for your sake. This is my prayer, that your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So I look to what is unseen. But then I also pray that our, knowledge, our love about more in knowledge and insight, that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He wants us prepared for the day of Christ. We already talked about that day coming, you know, the second part of the Philippians thing we first started with. So that my love would abound. And he doesn't mean just love for the Lord, love with each other. For the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. <clears throat> so this may not sound cheerful, but it is because it's a source of joy. And I get to talk about joy in two weeks, so I'm looking forward to that. But as we have this candle, I really felt like God really wanted it clear. It is a hope candle, and our hope is eternal. But we can't be looking for a sneaky backdoor rapture to escape all pain and suffering. It's like that song, and I, I really think the best way to close this will be singing that song again. Because we want our love to grow more and more. As we look forward to Jesus' coming, it is not to have our love wax cold. It says those who look forward to his coming purify themselves. And we do that in love. We get more engaged in Jesus with love and love for each other. That's how you prepare for God's coming. Because it actually can get kind of cold-hearted on the rapture doctrine sometimes. And I don't want to get into the whole rapture war doctrines. I, I got fed up with that in the 70s and 80s. But the whole idea is, it was almost like, oh yeah, you know, 200 million people will die in this battle, but praise God, we're out of here. And I'm like, I don't think that's God's heart. Oh, I'm okay. Who cares about the other 200 million? I think it's more like it is the God who desires none would perish. It's like we are supposed to be here to reach out with hope and love. Make sense? So, I'm not a pessimist. I told you I just want sometimes people have accused me of being an optimist, and they're always surprised when I tell them I'm not. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. 
Jim Stockton was a realist. Reality was he was facing hard times every day. Reality, he didn't know what he was going to get out. But his faith told him, I will get out. And that's my realist. I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. I know it ends well for me. <clears throat> okay? Amen. So with that, I'd like you, Jerry, if you'd seen that. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.